Our scripture reading is Colossians three twelve through 17. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. So we'll begin looking at the first part of verse 15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are also called, you were called in one body. It's clear from this whole section about Christian character that we have been studying in Paul's letter to the Colossians that God's salvation has a lot to do with harmonious human relationships. The new humanity that God is creating in Christ is one in which people get along with one another. Back in verse 11, Paul had taught that in the new humanity, which is being renewed in God's image, the traditional divisions between human beings would no longer be the cause of separation. The Christian character traits that are encouraged in verses 12 and 14 all have to do with people relating to to each other in ways that foster harmonious and upbuilding relationships. In the verse that we're going to look at this evening, Paul makes makes explicit this idea of harmonious relationships. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Now, peace is one of those terms in the Bible which is so prominent that you can summarize the main message of the Bible simply by reviewing what the Bible teaches about it. It is like love in this way. Peace is one of the great concepts In Scripture, it is one of the great themes of the Bible. In Luke 2, verse 14, the heavenly choir that celebrate the birth of Christ sing, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. One of the prophetic titles that describe Jesus long before he was actually born, was the Prince of Peace. And in Colossians 1.20, the mission of Jesus is described in terms of reconciliation, speaking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The situation that Jesus came to rectify was one of alienation and hostility. 
that alienation and hostility involved all relationships within the creation, and Jesus' work of reconciliation was to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Once sin entered the world, there was disharmony everywhere, and God's mission of salvation in Jesus can be understood as restoring harmony in all relationships between God and man, between man and man, and between man and the rest of the creation. There will never be harmony between God and the unredeemed, but the place of eternal punishment will not be part of the renewed creation. So peace is a very big deal in the scriptures. And the peace that Paul is talking about here is peace within the church. It's rooted in peace with God through Jesus' death on the cross. But what is the focus in this whole section in Colossians is how the followers of Jesus are to relate to one another. And that's the kind of peace that Paul is concerned about in verse 15. And he makes that clear uh, by the fact that he is here talking about peace in one body. He's talking about peace in the body of Christ. And so when Paul <clears throat> speaks of letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, he is talking about an inner peace, but it is an inner peace that results in peace in the body. So he's not concerned here with being peaceful in our hearts in the sense that we are calm and, and not anxious. His concern here is with peace in the body of Christ, and therefore the peaceful inner attitudes, the heart attitudes that he is talking about, are those that lead to peace within the body. That's an interesting thought. Paul is talking about letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, that his focus is not on their inner tranquility, but on feeling peaceful in our attitudes toward others. So he's talking about feeling peaceful instead of bitter towards others or alienated from others or angry with other people in the congregation. He's talking about feeling at peace in our hearts toward other people. So there is a subjective peace that he's talking about here, but <clears throat> there's a different focus than the peace from knowing that it is well with our souls, or the peace from not being anxious because we trust that God is taking care of us. This is the peace of feeling peaceful toward others in the congregation. It's the inner peace that comes from loving others and putting their needs before our own and having a forgiving spirit and being patient and meek. Our heart attitude towards our fellow believers is to be peaceful rather than warlike or antagonistic. The word rule here is also very interesting. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Rule, or rather, here's how Douglas Moo explains Paul's intention by using that particular word. He says, rule translates a Greek verb that refers to the activity of an umpire 
who renders verdicts in contested situations. The verb thus naturally takes on the connotation of control. The standard Greek lexicon paraphrases, let the peace of Christ be the decisive factor. In general, then, Paul wants the Colossians to make peace the arbiter, the factor that should be given preference over competing concerns and interests. So what Paul is saying here is that peace is to rule in our relationships and in our interactions with one another. Now that, of course, raises the question of situations in which matters of truth and principle seem to require conflict. Like when Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 1 that if anyone preached the gospel contrary to the one that he preached, that person should be accursed. Sometimes when something <clears throat> is serious enough, and when that is at, is at stake, we need to take a stand, we need to engage in conflict, we need to fight for a fundamental truth or principle. If we compare Scripture with Scripture, we must conclude that Paul here is not saying that, that peace must be the only and decisive factor in every situation. But he is saying that even then, we must conduct ourselves in such a way that we are always striving for peace. If we must engage in conflict, we must be kind and patient and meek and humble, so that even then, the peace of Christ is ruling in our hearts. The goal of conflict, if we must engage in it, must still be peace. And the cause of conflict, if it involves false teaching, lies with the false teachers. However, peace is more important than most of the issues that threaten and undermine peace in the churches. The kinds of things that Paul thought about in his ministry had to do with the fundamentals of the gospel. In the vast majority of cases within churches, peace is more important than the issues that cause division. And that's really the point that Paul is making when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace is, must be the boss. It must rule. Peace overrides pretty much everything else. Unless it has to do, the issue has to do with the heart of the gospel itself. And that is underscored in the context here where Paul is urging compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and above all, putting on love. The peace that Paul is talking about is the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ is the peace that he embodies and that he brings. Christ, of course, is the model of how we are to live. He 
was and is the perfect human being. But by his life, death, and resurrection, he brings about the, cons- the, the, the comprehensive peace that the Bible talks about. We've already glanced at Colossians 1.20 that says that through Jesus, God is reconciling all things to himself and that Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. That peace is peace with God for believers, but it also results in peace between believers and God. And as God renews us in his image so that as we are growing in compassion and kindness and all the rest of the virtues that Paul mentions in verses uh, 12 through 14, we are also growing in peace, being peacemakers. And it's also interesting that Paul says here that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. There's a passive component to this idea. The peace of Christ is what is to rule. And we are to allow it, let it do so. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There is something about pursuing peace that is passive. We are to allow peace to rule rather than being active and imposing peace on a situation. James Dunn expresses this thought in his commentary on the passage. He says that the peace of Christ is not something, quote, is not something that the Colossians have to accomplish, but to let happen. To let go any attempt to control and to manipulate and to let the peace of Christ be the determiner. So peace is something that you let happen rather than make happen. If you impose peace, you have tyranny. If you allow peace, you have freedom. Now there, of course, is there's a place for leadership in the church, both formally and informally. But leadership in the church is servant leadership. And so there is even there a passive aspect to it in the sense that it is not aggressive, that it is not forceful. Peter in 1 Peter 5 tells elders not to be domineering over those in their charge. Galatians 6.1, Paul says that even <clears throat> when dealing with sins that must be confronted, that must be dealt with, it must be done in the spirit of gentleness. And so even in leadership, There is an aspect of passivity in the sense that it does not force its will on others, but teaches and shows and gently guides so that the goal is pursued in a non-coercive, a non-dominating way. And that's the nature of pursuing peace in general. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in our heart. So we are are to allow 
kindness to rule, humility to rule, meekness to rule, patience to rule, bearing with one another to rule, and forgiveness to rule, and love to rule. And when those things are ruling, we are not ruling. It means that our will does not come first. It means that we are not imposing our agenda or our opinion on others. But as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and each one looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There is in all of this a, a kind of passivity in which we do not push ourselves forward or our opinions or our ideas, but allow others to have their say and to count them and their thoughts as significant. So where there is peace, there is a lot of allowing going on. And a lot of holding ourselves back to allow others to be heard and appreciated. See, this principle worked out by Paul in his teaching on how to deal with disputable matters in Romans 14 in the first part of 15. This passage uses the terminology of those who are weak in the faith and those who are strong in the faith. In many of the type of disputable matters in our situation, it's difficult to know who is the weak one and who is the strong one, but the principles apply regardless. The passage teaches us that we are not to quarrel over opinions, teaches us that we are not to pass judgment on others who are believers and have different opinions than we do. In verse 19 of chapter 14, Paul writes, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then in chapter 15, 1 to 3a, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, but let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. So that kind of demonstrates the passive element in letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We bear with the failings of others. We do not please ourselves, but we please our neighbor for his good. The key to the passive element is allowing peace to rule. In allowing peace to rule is not pleasing ourselves but pleasing others for their good to build them up. In most cases where peace is lacking, selfishness is at the core. And it's vital that we ask ourselves in situations where we are not allowing the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, whether we are seeking to please ourselves or whether we are seeking to please our neighbor for his good to build him up. It may be so that in a situation of disharmony that we are truly 
seeking to please our neighbor for his good to build him up, but it may also be that at the root of the problem we, is that we are trying to, seeking to please ourselves. One of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is putting ourselves before others. And at the heart of the change that God is working in us in our salvation is to change us toward putting God first and putting other people before ourselves. Getting back to Colossians 3.15, Paul goes on to say that the the members of Christ's church have been called to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. The word called is another one of those great and important terms in the New Testament. It carries a lot of freight. It is a weighty word like love and like peace. It is a key salvation word. He says, you were called. That refers to God's powerful call that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. The theological word is effectual call. When the Bible speaks, in the Bible rather, when God speaks with the intention to make something happen, it happens like when God spoke the world into existence, or when Jesus called the dead Lazarus out of the tomb. The reality behind the call that Paul is speaking about here is the power of God by which he is able to accomplish his will simply by speaking. So in 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That call was not simply an invitation, it was an accomplishment. When when God calls his people, they are brought into fellowship with Jesus. The call changes them. The call is a transforming call which produces the response, even though in a way that does not violate our wills, so that at the same time our response is voluntary and joyful. Peter, 1 Peter 9, 1 Peter 2, 9, refers to the same call when he says of believers that God has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. By means of God's powerful call, the darkness was penetrated by the light of God so that those who are blind could now see. That's the call that Paul is referring to in our text when he says that Colossians have been called to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts in one body. Clearly, Paul is telling the Colossians to do something. But that exhortation to let peace rule is rooted in what God has already done when he powerfully and effectually called them in one body. They had been united to the body of Christ by means of God's powerful call, and now they are being exhorted to live out the implications of that by letting the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. And so this is one of the things that believers are effectually called to do, to let 
the peace of Christ rule in their heart so that there will be peace and harmony in the body of Christ. And this is a huge part of God's goal in calling them to be part of his church, that the church might be one in peace and harmony and love. This is clearly very important to God. This is a key part of his plan for the renewal of all things. It's one of the great accomplishments of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is how we are called to live together in the body of Christ. There's an interesting angle on this in Paul's teaching about the body in 1 Corinthians 12. That's one of the key passages in the New Testament concerning the unity of the body of Christ, which is the church. And this is one of the passages that teaches that everyone in the body has been gifted for the common good, and that the various gifts that God gives to his people all contribute to the unity of the body. So verse 12 there says, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then verse 13, For in in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink in one spirit. And then Paul goes on to say there that every part, each part of the body is important and significant. And in that context, he makes a profound point that the less dramatic gifts are indispensable and greater honor is to be stowed on the weaker members. Verses 24 and 25, he says, But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So he's talking about peace, that there might be no division in the body. And one of the important principles of peace in the body is giving the greater honor to the part that lacked it. That means people who are not naturally honored because they are weaker, because their gifts are not of the kind that get noticed and honored. They are to be given the greater honor, and the purpose of that is that there may be no division in the body. Romans 12.10 says that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. So there's to, be, there's to be a competition among the members of Christ's church. But it's not a competition of getting honor, but in seeking to outdo one another in showing honor to others. And the people who are to receive the greatest honor are the people least likely to be honored naturally. This is the kind of thing that Paul seeks to invoke by mentioning one body in our text. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body.
Peace and unity go together. We are one body in Christ. And one of the great principles of unity that Paul teaches is that we are to outdo one another in showing honor and that the greatest honor, we're to give the greatest honor to the weakest and the least likely to be honored because of their weakness. It's hard to overemphasize the importance of peace and harmony in the New Testament teaching about the church. That does not mean peace at all costs. There are situations in which the, where the love for God and love for neighbor requires taking a stand. We see Jesus doing that. We see the apostles doing that in various places in the New Testament. <clears throat> If the clear teaching of the word of God in doctrine or in life is being denied, it is never loving to allow that to continue without confronting it. And sometimes love then requires conflict. But even then, these verses that we've been looking at still apply to the way in which we are to relate to each other in the church. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and above all, loving one another. Even in necessary conflict, we are to be peacemakers. But much of the time, conflict and tensions and disunity have nothing to do with the clear teaching of the Word of God in doctrine or in Christian living. Often they have to do with with what Romans 14 calls disputable matters, Often they have to do with stubbornness and selfishness and inflexibility and pride and insisting on things going our way. Often disunity has to do with thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought and a failure to be patient and to bear with one another and to honor one another. Often disunity has to do with a failure to appreciate how important peace is in the New Testament teaching about the church. And I think it is accurate to say that in most cases, at least in churches where the truth is loved and confessed, peace is much more important than the kind of issues that typically cause disunity. Now, I don't want to give the impression that our church is having particular problems in this area. We are blessed with a high degree of peace and harmony. Last words of verse 15, Paul calls us to be thankful, and we have much to be thankful for. It's also significant that Paul's exhortation to peace and harmony is addressed to a church that was not having great problems in this area with disunity. There was the matter of the false teaching and false teaching always causes disunity, but we also have to remember how Paul begins his letter. Back in chapter 1, 3, and 4, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. But still Paul teaches the church, as he does, because even though there was reason for thanksgiving, There still was reason for growth in every area, and so it is with us. We can and we should be thankful for the peace that we do enjoy. 
we can and we should acknowledge it as a gift of God, a gift of grace, of the outworking of salvation in our lives. We never have anything that we have not received, but there is always room for growth. I'm sure that we've all heard things this evening that convict us of sin. Who of us can say that we are always allowing the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts? And must we not all confess that there are times when when other attitudes are ruling and they are not of Christ at all? Thankfully, if we, are think, if we are trusting in Jesus and seeking to please him, also in this area, our sins are forgiven. We are, we are living in the love and the grace of God for Jesus' sake. We are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And God, through his word here, is calling us something, to something that is beautiful and profoundly enjoyable, peace and harmony and love. We've experienced enough of it to know that it is the way of life and blessing. It is in relationships that we experience the blessedness of life as God designed it and as he is restoring it through Christ in the church. Peace and harmony are wonderful to experience and are worth experiencing in a deeper way. And that is what God is calling us to work towards. And that is what he is calling us to allow to rule in our hearts. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank you for the peace that we do enjoy in this congregation. We acknowledge your goodness. We acknowledge that in ourselves, we are not peaceful, and that the peace that exists then is because of your grace in our lives, and we are grateful for that. But Lord, as we have seen and as we know from our own experience that there is much room for growth in us, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to think of the things that we have heard, to review this passage, to consider our own lives in the light of it, and to repent where we need to repent. We pray that, like all the other graces and uh, virtues that you call us to, that, that this may be a matter of ongoing growth and development as we, as we are engaged with your word and engaged with your people and have opportunities to work together and to practice putting others before ourselves. We thank you for the beauty of that to which you are working We thank you for the great cost in Jesus Christ that you have paid for that result. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the the will, the desire, the passion to implement that more and more in our own experience, in our congregational experience, and beyond. That your church may more and more reflect the love of Christ and 
that it may be a great part of our witness to the world. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.